all bad things. Tragedy. Tragedies, disasters. That's bad things. Trigger warning for everything possible. What? Ready in five, four, three. <laughs> I'm Rachel and I'm David and this is all bad things we did we did a, a silent count there that, that for the last two like yes. the pros do that's yes. right yeah you learned that in school I did mm-hmm. yes are you gonna welcome everybody oh uh, yes <laughs> welcome welcome everybody welcome <laughs> kind of threw me off there I know <laughs> Uh, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, at AllBadThingsPod. Email us AllBadThingsPod at gmail.com. Join our Facebook discussion group and our Discord. Ooh, some people were asking me on Twitter for the Discord link. I guess I'd better follow up on that. I've still never been on it. I don't know how to get to it. I don't know. Well, <laughs> I don't know how to use it. When the office moves back home, um, yeah, we'll, we'll figure it out. I'll set you up with the computer. Okay. Maybe, mm-hmm. maybe I'll become a Twitch star in the meantime. There you go. There. That works. Seeing as how one of the Twitch streamers streamers I follow uh, bought a $3 million house today. So Who? Uh, the guy that I always watch. Oh, Hassan. Hassanabi? Yeah. $3 million? I thought he has to move a lot. Cause what do you mean? You said he had to move frequently because of like death death threats and stuff, too. That's what he said. Yeah. Well, why would you buy a $3 million home, then? I'm guessing it's got... I don't Maybe know security, security Maybe or security. yeah, or is in like a neighborhood that has security. Is or... it a little disingenuous for a progressive commentator to buy a three million dollar home? I don't think so. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I mean, but that's what, but that's what the word is because it just happened today, apparently. Oh. Okay. And so that's the word. Like a socialist bought a three million. It's like when did? I don't know where this. Tro- I, mean, I don't know where the trope of uh-huh. you can't make money as a socialist came from, or a, like. I mean. Well, and he doesn't. He doesn't necessarily. I, I, I raised my eyebrow. I'll, I'll admit, and I'm progressive. So yeah. it didn't surprise me because he yeah. he is like the biggest sure. Twitch streamer. Like period. I think so. Wow. E- either number one or like easily He's like the Rogan a top... of Twitch, huh? I think so. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So I'll I'll get there one day. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> but nobody knows who the fuck I am. <laughs> Not uh, there was a time when nobody knew who Hassan was either. Not really, because he started on the Young Turks a while ago. So he already nepotism. See nepotism, and now he yep naughty naughty but he, socialist. But he did this. <laughs> I'm but he kidding. oh okay. I was gonna say, but he did the smart thing and was like, I don't I'm need. Ki- I'm kidding. I don't need the Young Turks anymore. I can just do my mm-hmm. own thing. Well, especially considering some of the shit that's going down. Yeah. Kind of the progressive movement is having, like, a gross moment with a lot of, like, infighting and picking on each other. And but that's normal. I mean, that's, a usual, that's a usual. It is normal. What I you mean, drinking? it's oh, cir- circular firing squad, as always. Yeah. Um, I am drinking what, what I... I think I'm going to call this the number one. We we realized today when we went to the grocery store that the pumpkin beers are out. Yeah, it's late August, and that means Halloween. <laughs> so, so, like everybody, every local brewery had yeah. their pumpkin beer out. And national. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Um, so we get the um, Harvest Time, which is, uh, why is it escaping me? I know, Big Boss. Big Boss, mm-hmm. Harvest Time. I think this is the best okay. pumpkin beer, to well, be honest. We'll, we'll try each other's. I got so if the... you are in North Carolina, mm-hmm. or if you can get North Carolina beer and you like pumpkin beers, definitely What's get Big Boss Harvest Time. Um, I think Gorgeous is that's one a good of my one. Favorites. Yeah, that's yeah. a good one too. Uh, so this is I'm drinking a Noda, uh, which is out of Charlotte, Passion Fruit Ghosts of Beer. It's I'm very sure light, that. and it's I think it's good. I like big, Passion Fruit. I'm not a big really Goza like fan. Fruit. Let's see. Yeah, you don't like sours and stuff. This is where all our non-drinkers yeah. skip through. Oh, uh, that's not bad. The spices are good, no? Yeah, it's not bad. Pomegranate. Passion fruit. Oh, passion fruit. Kind of tastes like. I think I see why you like this. It's not very sweet, but it's no. It's not it's sweet got at all. It's got. Spices. It's got just enough. Yeah. It's got all the pumpkin spices. That is pretty good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we got something super yes, fun in the cool mail in the mail. Today. Yes. So Nicole, who wrote the great um, Wilcox expedition two-parter mm-hmm. for us. Uh, recently, as she mentioned, got to visit Alaska and Ketchikan, which we mentioned. Mm-hmm. And uh, wait, posted, she sent us some stuff. Yeah, she posted some pictures, mm-hmm. including a shot of a shirt. Oh my goodness! And now I completely forget what it it's, says it's because Ketch- I don't have well, it in here with it's me. It's Ketchikan, uh, and then something else. <laughs> that's, that's correct. Yes. it does say that. Let me see. I know she posted it, before, but I, and that's. I do have to say one of the photos that she posted, and I've been meaning to take a screenshot of this and post it to her. One of the photos she posted from Ketchikan, I, it looks like one of the towns in Red Dead Redemption 2. Yeah, you said called, that. Called Strawberry. Yeah. Strawberry. Yes. Huh. Uh, okay, get lo- Ketchikan, get lost in nature, and you will and probably, quite possibly, die. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes. Find yourself is scratched out, and it says quite possibly die. Yeah, if you get lost in nature anywhere in Alaska, I'm thinking your chances of dying are pretty good. Her pictures are great. Join our discussion group mm-hmm. if you want to see them. Um, it looks gorgeous there. And, and she had just posted a picture of that T-shirt as like a funny T-shirt, and I was like, "Oh, will you get it for me?" And she, and she totally did. did. Yeah. <laughs> That's me uh, abusing my <laughs> extremely limited clout. <laughs> But that was very kind of you, well, Nicole. We should all abuse our extremely limited clout. Well, and I have Nicole's return address, so I'm going <clears> to <throat> send her something. Need to find something to send her. And also sent some fun stickers and postcards, including Alaska State Statistics. Statehood, January 3rd, 1959. The 49th state. Mm-hmm. The state animal. What do you think the state? I'm going to quiz you. I'm going to go with a moose. Yes. It's got to be. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say it's got to be. It was either that or a grizzly bear but i don't think <laughs> what is the state flower this is a tough one i, I don't know flowers. forget me not how about the state Wait, is that the name of the flower yeah oh. you've never heard of forget me not uh-uh. yeah uh the state mineral oil <laughs> it's gold because remember there was an alaskan gold that's rush, right too. there was yeah um oh a, a state sport that's got to be hockey that's right? a good guess. It's dog sled mushing. <laughs> nah, that's boring. There's, there's not a stadium for dog sled mushing, is there? I guess not. <laughs> what do you think the state fish is? Oh, uh, salmon? Maybe? Yeah, king is salmon. Is it salmon? Oh, okay. The rest are really I, I, I kind of knew that because I just finished that um, mm. that that part of the, the Red Mission. Dead Redemption 2 games, <laughs> catching all the legendary fish. Did you get them all? I did, yes. <laughs> Gotta catch them all. Mm-hmm. 
The state gem is jade. The state jade. marine mammal is the bowhead whale. I would have gone with an otter. Huh. The state insect is the dragonfly. The state tree is the stica, sitka spruce. And the bird is the willow ptarmigan. Okay. That's very I think they had that in Red Dead Redemption too. They have like 500 some animals in the huh. game. And you have to... That's another side quest. You have to find them all. So, super fun. And Nicole yeah. also teased another Alaska script. In the oh, okay. So that'll be I'm, very fun. I'm sure Alaska is a place that has yielded plenty of disasters. Anywhere with a lot of wilderness. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, I'm sure the number of bear attacks are out oh, there. Oh, I'm sure. You know? Yeah. At the very least. Even since it's been civilized. I mean, mm-hmm. Alaska itself is only civilized in maybe the last 100 years, maybe? 150 years? It wasn't the Se- Seward Purchase or the Seward Seward Purchase? That came up in an episode we did. Something like that. We are the worst. Yeah. <laughs> we, re- we research all these things and promptly forget I think, all of it. I think... I honestly think Alaska's history is we leased it from Canada and just kind of never gave it back. Well, we bought it at some point. No, Somebody th- bought it. No, I think we like leased it and we're just like, well, we're just going to keep it now. <laughs> Maybe it was a, 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 a lease to buy agreement. Something like that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like it's, a rent to It's buy. weird. It, 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 it is a story in itself how it came to be, as as is the case with most states. Sorry, I'm just messing with our levels here. I think we're a little too high. We're so we're so sophisticated. We we're just going to... Sh- shift it in the middle of the episode why not why not um so we do still have a little a little cache of listener scripts which is super helpful considering i'm still adjusting to being full-time employed while still kind of running my business on the side oh yeah and grad school and two bands and the podcast um sometimes there's just not enough hours in the week but this week how about that (laughs) Sorry, I'm messing with the levels again. Okay. Now all of a sudden it's quiet. This is why this is hard, guys. (laughs) But I did end up doing some research this week. So um, I kind of gave away something about my employment a couple episodes ago, and then I went back and cut it out because I didn't want to... Well, I read the privacy policy or whatever. (laughs) Um, It's always a smart thing to do. Yeah. Just in case. Long and short, I just want to stipulate from the beginning that none of my views have anything to do with my employer. And I do not speak on behalf of my employer. So I'm going to be a little coy about who my employer is moving forward. But long and short, I am working in insurance. So Mm -hmm. now I know what you all are thinking. You're like, you moved from the wild, wacky world of taxes into the even more scintillating world of insurance, you know? Yeah, it's like a documentary filmmaker going on to do plays. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit. (laughs) Like, I get that my interests lie in some of the most boring things to other people. It, so. Yeah, I'm waiting for the, uh, who's the guy that does all the long documentaries? Ken uh, Burns. Yeah, I'm waiting for the, the, the <laughs> Ken, Ken Burns, Burns play. It'll literally be five days long. <laughs> it'll be like the Wagner ring cycle yeah. of operas. And it'll, just... it'll all be one take. <laughs> With lots of the Bur- Ken Burns effect. You yeah. Know. <laughs> so, I am covering... This week, an insurance-related disaster. Okay. Specifically, we are going to talk about the 1980s liability insurance crisis. Oh, I actually 
kind of know, know about this? I, I, know, I had never heard of it. I know this. of it, yes. Okay, okay. So we're going to get to dive into it. A lot of people went to jail for this, if I'm... Okay, I didn't find anything about that. Okay, maybe I'm thinking of... No, Are I, I'm sorry. Are you thinking of savings and loan? That's what I'm thinking of. Well, yes. we will mention that. Okay. And that's where, remember I said there was some political stuff you would probably mm-hmm. just know mm-hmm. because of the stuff you've listened to? You'll have an option or uh, opportunity to interject that stuff. So. Oh, okay. So I, in... I can't wait. And I'm, sh- <laughs> I'm sure the audience can either. <laughs> So in the mid-1980s, the United States insurance industry experienced a partial collapse, leading to sky-high premiums for consumers and, in some cases, complete unavailability to be insured at all. Yeah, just wait until the 2005 New Orleans hurricane, ladies and gentlemen. Mm. Mm. A very pressing um, matter to insurance companies right now is climate change. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that, that, that thing that doesn't exist? <laughs> yeah, that thing. Oh, the Chinese uh, hoax? Somehow when it affects their bottom line, insurance companies aren't denying it. Well, I mean, one little thing about that, and I haven't looked at their website recently to see if it's been put back on, but when Trump became president, um, the Department of Defense had like a list of their biggest concerns Okay. for possibility for war yeah. and great migration climate change, climate change was on their list yep. so the department of defense to their Recognizes credit it. actually they have to yes because it's a legitimate it's a, because defense it's a, concern i was gonna say it's a it's also a possible war scenario yes mm-hmm. um so during the trump they took that off um so they decided to not defend the united states in part by didn't they pretended that a real oh, well, didn't exist? They just yeah, well yeah. So I haven't checked to see if it's back on there or not. But I always thought that that was kind of a funny thing. It's like if you want to convince a right winger that climate change is real, just direct them to the Department of Defense right. website because it's on. It, well, it was on there. Right. I don't know Support if it's since been troops. put. Yeah. Biden's not that great either, so <laughs> oh, I, I doubt it's been put back on. Shock of all shocks. I know. Who saw that (laughs) coming? Biden somehow, just like this little dead fish leading the country. Yeah. Anyway, uh, lots of sources for this one, including The Actuary Magazine, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, businessinsurance.com, consumerwatchdog.org, Duke University, the FDIC, which is the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the FTC, which is the Federal Trade Commission, Investopedia, the Journal of Risk and Uncertainty, the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, or NAIC, PBS, Swiss RE, the University of Illinois, and Wikipedia. The FDIC being one of the things that came from the fallout of the 1929 stock Mm -hmm. market crash. Um, Deposits insured up to $250,000. Yes. Indeed. I know that from working at a bank for a little while. Yeah, there you go. <clears throat> it's funny that ha- that hasn't changed in a it long has time, not even changed. though there's been inflation. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that 250 grand is worth a hell of a lot less now than it was in 1930-something, whenever right. that got passed. All right, so we're going to start with Insurance Corner. <laughs> I, slow clap? You know? <laughs> Yay, let's all learn about insurance. So, uh, it's, uh, do, oh, sorry, I'm still struggling with these levels. Are, do you say insurance or insurance? Insurance? Yeah, I say okay. insurance yeah. too. My dad says insurance. I say insurance. Yeah. But yeah, it's interesting. Anyway, <clears throat> the broad strokes of insurance are generally pretty under, pretty well understood, right? In the simplest terms. Well, unless you're, uh, uh, unless you're Paul Ryan. 
but that's a whole different story. Okay, I'll yes. just take that as an inside <laughs> joke. Yes. So the the basic mechanisms are bad shit happens, disasters, illness, death, and that causes a financial repercussion, right? Like you have to rebuild or you have medical bills or you lose an income like from a household and that burden uh is something that the affected individuals may not be able to bear financially sure Uh, insurance companies collect fees which are called premiums from customers who are called policyholders with the understanding that if something bad the covered event happens to the policyholder, the insurance company will, under the terms and conditions of the insurance policy, cover some version of that financial burden. You pay the money over time with the fingers crossed hope that if something bad happens to you, they're going to pay you a bunch of money out. No, the the reason I mentioned Paul Ryan is when he was... uh, He was Speaker of the the House. When he was Speaker of the House... Um, and he was a senator. Uh, he's from from K- Wisconsin. Oh, who am I thinking of? Who's the guy from Kentucky? Rand That's Paul Mi- and Mitch McConnell. They're both from. Kentucky. I'm thinking of Rand Paul, yeah, that, that not guy's... Paul Ryan. Oh, that guy, Paul Ryan. Yes. Oh, that the guy, guy with the widow's yeah. peak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, like when he became Speaker of the House, <laughs> I mean, Medicare for All has been in something that's been uh-huh. on the table for the last four or five years. It's been uh-huh. a discussion anyway. Mm-hmm. So he went on this long rant about how he doesn't think it's right that. Um, a bunch of young people who aren't going to use the health insurance are paying for a bunch of old people who are. That's and, social and, security. And, and everybody's like, yeah, Paul, that's how health insurance works. Well, it's how everything. Young people well, are, aren't going to use it as much as elderly people. Well, and we'll get into that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> that is the assumption. Yes, you're right. You're absolutely right. That is the assumption. But he like, and everybody is like, oh, he's such a genius. It's like, no, that's, no. that's literally how it works. And also <laughs> social security is that. Yeah. So like, you know. Um, so some of those burdens that... This episode's not going to get political at all. <laughs> some of those burdens, the burden, the financial burden of covering a, a loss from an insurance policy are more easily calculated than others, right? So like if, if somebody has a homeowner's policy, homeowner's insurance, their home is worth a set amount of money. Now it's going to change with the market. But it's not going to suddenly be worthless or in general. I mean, there will be much bigger problems if that happens. Um, and that policy can go up with it. Like the premiums can go up with the market value of the home and such. So that when something bad happens to that house, the cost of rebuilding is actually pretty easy to state, right? Yeah. So. Well, but, should be anyway. Right. But then there are some things that are much harder to quantify, including like a death, mm-hmm. like life insurance. What's the monetary value of a human life? Like that alone is creepy, right? Well, we know but with a child, it's nothing. Well, so it's it's not so much, and it's not really like you're trying to put a dollar value. You can usually choose from a number of set amounts, but anyway. You're essentially trying to put like a life estimate on... You know, we'll get into actuarial science. Oh, yay. We're going to get into actuarial science, too. I know everybody is just on the edge of their seat. I hope you're not driving while listening to this (laughs) because you might fall asleep. asleep. Yes. I hope I hope they have rumble strips (laughs) on whatever road you're driving on. And there are different formulas for the payout. Now, on the back end, insurance companies 
And I know this may sound silly, but like I didn't until very recently really understand the mechanics of what goes on in an insurance company. They're collecting all those premiums, all those fees from their policyholders, and they invest that money because they can't just pooling it isn't really well. It enough. doesn't, and it's not practical either. And it's a, yeah, just making it sit there for yeah. no reason. You're right. So they invest it, <clears throat> and they'll invest it in any number of investments. And we'll kind of get into that a little bit too. So yay, more to look forward. Hopefully, to. it's boring things that like gain like a percent a year but we all know it's probably not well the problem is if it had that slow of growth it actually may not grow enough to be able to pay out all the policies that's true too they gotta take a a little risk this is a risky business i mean it really 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 is so and we're gonna get a lot into risk but the idea is that ideally they'll have enough money to pay the policies that they need to pay um people who make a claim right this is the ideal mechanism of how this would work, but in the 1980s, things did not go as planned. <laughs> and we mean that for everything. Yes, that's very true. <laughs> it was, this was very um, interlocking with other things. Now, <laughs> unless you were a Reagan conservative, <laughs> I am introducing the next segment, which I call "A Brief History of Insurance and Its Regulation." It's only two pages long. Don't worry. Nice. Single spaced, eleven. Point 11 size font and uh, half inch margins. <coughs> Can't wait. All right, so the concept of insurance goes back to prehistoric times. So basically, it was a lot less formal, but the idea, it was sort of like the it takes a village mentality. If something happened to somebody within a village, like the other people in there had your back, right? Yeah. So like Orc had 12 stones and. Um, Orc Jr. collected six, so collectively they had 18 just in case something happened. I don't know. <laughs> you, said, you, said it was, you said it was prehistoric. It was prehistoric, but it's more like if, so I'm going back to the dawn of if man. somebody's cave got destroyed, another neighbor would take them into their cave sort of idea. I okay. mean, that's, that's, that's probably a better analogy. <laughs> so basically, insurance, like the general concept, kind of arose from like neighbors helping neighbors. And really, if you had a cooperative enough environment, you wouldn't really need a formalized plan necessarily. But anyway, no, I'm just getting into communism, like (laughs) pure communism, not dictatorial communism. Anyway, the more complex trade became, became the more codified the concept of the recovery of a loss became. And then it started to become more of a business because, of course, uh, evidence of civilizations engaging in business of insurance go back to the first Babylonian Empire around 1750 BCE. Wow, so, okay. Like, yeah, nearly 4,000 years ago. That's interesting. There's a thing. It's called, a, it's a stele. It's called, and it's, it's a big column. It's like two and a half meters tall. That was found um, called the Codex Hammurabi or the Code of Hammurabi. And it is... So it's like this giant column, but it's inscribed. Okay. And this is basically like the earliest known um, formalized written reference to insurance is on this column. It also contains a lot of like early contract law on it. Like this was the first codified version that we know of that we've been able to recover of a lot of things about contractual law. And it contained two laws which covered basic insurance for a ship. 
And that is really Makes sense. the genesis of formalized business of insurance was for ships. Yeah, that makes sense. Right, because they're expensive to build. Yes, most of the, the insurance. The, the odds of it sinking are highly likely. Sinking pirates, mm-hmm. uh, being stolen. Mm-hmm. Like there's any number of things that could happen. But yes, it was very exp- a very expensive endeavor. It was very dangerous, but very profitable and, if you did it right. And yes, and plus at that time, that's what trade literally relied on. Yes, it was all by sea. I mm-hmm. mean, there was land trade too. Yes. But if you're going to trade internationally or like on a larger scale, yeah, it's going to be by sea. Um. There were also provisions from Codex Hammurabi that included requirements for like, okay, if a person is insuring somebody else for their ship and then the ship gets shipwrecked or whatever, you have to rebuild it within a year. So it gave like um, terms and conditions to uh, to insurance, this, this early version of insurance and also talked about punishing people who made false claims and that is still a very big part of insurance um insurance companies have like investigators yeah Yeah. for fraud um my aunt used to work for an attorney who represented a lot of insurance companies and they would literally like send investigators out to like people who filed workers comp claims and like May see if they were t- like uh, like Toby and Dwight when uh, Dwight was convinced that Daryl was was pretending. Was it Dwight? Was it Andy? Oh man! Anyway, they were convinced that Daryl was the pretending one to be the her. Office I know. Seven. I know. Times. I know. Anyway, I, I went down a rabbit trail. But anyway, evidence was found from the very first centuries of the Common Era for early actuary tables. Now, do you know what actuarial science is? I have no idea. It is the, basically the science of calculating risk. Oh, so like odds making. Yes. Yeah, long and short, except because it's business related and not like sort of dark business related. It's well, gambling is a business. It is. Yeah. It is. Well, you know what? You're you're not wrong because I was going to say, well, actuaries Whether it's legal or illegal gambling, it's yep, still business. Yep, you're right. I was going to say actuarial <laughs> actuarial science is actually extremely math and statistics based but i'm sure odds making is too so yes you're right so yeah basically because like there's a reason why vegas wins more often than they don't Mm -hmm. because they have people going over this shit all day all night then you can think of uh actuaries as like the odds makers Mm -hmm. for the insurance companies that's a good way to put it how can you remain profitable uh, they're meant to measure and project risk. Mm-hmm. So, and it's not just in in insurance. They also work with like pensions, social welfare, anything that the idea <clears throat> is that things are being paid in, but it's a long tail proposition. Like it's things are being paid in now for future unknown timed events. You know, like life insurance, for example. Nobody knows how long any individual is going to live. All you so, can go off of is an average. Yes, uh, essentially a statistical model, and mm-hmm. that's what actuaries do. Yeah. But yeah, like I want to say it was like it was recent. It was either 2016 or 17 or whatever. Vegas was losing its ass off the NFL because there were so many bad teams in the league that year oh. that their point spreads were off. Huh. Like they were winning at like a 32 percent clip. 
Vegas was. Uh-huh. Usually they're winning somewhere in the realm of 55 to 60. Well, they have to win a majority of the time yes. to be solvent, and basically. Because there are so many bad... Because it's very rare in the NFL. You will see a point spread. A point spread meaning right. the winning team is going to have this many more points right. than the losing team. Very rare in the NFL you'll see a point spread that's 10 points or higher. Very mm. rare. Because mm-hmm. these are all professionals. Right. There are some blowouts here and there, yes. but they're not... All the time. But know. yeah, but that particular season, there were so many blowouts and they were, yeah. It was just, it was just a weird season. It was just fucking up the odds. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah, big time. That makes sense. Um, also, sidebar, like year after year, actuaries tend to be on the list of like happiest occupations. There you go. Like yeah. people who are actuaries apparently really just like being actuaries. Maybe you can do that next. You know, I've considered it. <laughs> it's it's a whole. I'd have to learn so much statistics yeah, and a chaos lot more math. a lot more data analysis. So, um, so the the general average principle was also developed in the third century CE, which introduced the idea of sharing losses amongst stakeholders. Right, like a common pool of funds that could pay for any one individual's pro- catastrophe. Because the odds of something happening to all of the people pooling their money simultaneously is low. Hmm. So, um, in medieval times, sea loans became sea loans became common, and that's where the investor in a voyage would loan their money to a sea merchant, and then the merchant would pay it back with interest, providing the ship arrived back safely from its journey. So there was like an incentive to get the. The boat back. Uh, this, uh, the, yeah, this connected risk to costs as the higher risk activities like sea trade carried higher interest costs than the lower risk costs like traveling by land. And this ran afoul of the Catholic Church eventually, <laughs> as the interest being charged on these loans could be as high as fifty percent. Okay. And that sure. caused that's, that's then, a lot. then Pope Gregory the Ninth to call it and probably correctly called it usury. Yeah. Which is loan sharking, mm-hmm. right? Charging uh the mob has <laughs> engaged in this for quite some time. You don't say. Yeah. <laughs> and the Pope called for a ban on sea loans, but uh, insurance and trade became more complex as trade became more complex and additional mechanisms and complexities like commission-based agents, so people who sell insurance for a commission, were created. And at that point, risk mitigation also became a thing. So the more you can reduce your risk, the less likely that you'll have to pay out as an insurer, right? If you can control your risk, then you're not going to have to pay money out as often. Um, an example of early risk mitigation was that if you were um, a, a sea trader, like you were um, uh, the investor in sending this cargo by sea, you could split it amongst several ships because the odds of something happening to all of the ships were lower than if you just put it all on one ship. So putting all your eggs in one ship, as it were. Uh, So by the late 17th century, as exploration and trade by sea were flourishing, insurance carriers started becoming more sophisticated. And a man named Edward Lloyd owned a coffee house in London. Do you see where we're going with this? Sure. No, you don't. I don't. (laughs) It was a popular hangout spot for people who are willing to assume the risk of an insurance policy for a trade or on on trade for a fee. 
and in late 1691, a group of them formally organized as the Society of Lloyds, or what is common, or what is, of course, is modern day, Lloyds of London. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I was like, Lloyd, London. Okay. Yeah. Lloyds of London. So, during, <laughs> during this time. Oh, yeah, them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> during this time, the term underwriting was created. Um, I don't know about anyone else, but prior to working in insurance, the general insurance field and learning more about it, um, the experience I had with underwriters was trying to get mortgages, like the original mortgage and when we recently refinanced. And the underwriter was always the prick who asked the most like obnoxious questions like, can you get us your tax transcripts for the past 10 years and bullshit like that. Because these are the it's people. Not bullshit to them. No, these are the people who are researching whether you're a good credit yeah. risk is what they're doing. So uh, anyway, when these early uh, assumers of risk would assume the risk of a voyage by sea, they would write their name under the terms of the contract, and then that just became a term underwriting. And uh, today, underwriting still means the assum- guaranteeing the assumption of a risk. Um, and around the same time, insurance began growing into other sectors, including property insurance. And that's really started with fire insurance. Um, and that was spurred on by the Great Fire of London hmm. in 1666, which is on our, on our list. I was going to say, I hope so. Mm-hmm. And then also business insurance. And that was followed by life insurance in the early 18th century, which is where actuarial science really had a chance to develop because estimating someone's life expectancy can be very tricky. And while England remained the like the major player in the industry of insurance, the U.S. soon developed its own market around the time of the Revolutionary War, because ain't nobody in England writing a policy for anybody in the United States. When the United States is at war with England. That's true. We owed all our money to France. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so we created our own insurance industry at that point. And now the 1800s exposed a very unique risk to insurance companies. The idea of large-scale disasters causing massive payouts that may not be possible for an insurer to cover. And that kind of started in around 1842 when the Great Fire of Hamburg, again, need to put that one on the list, destroyed almost a quarter of the city. It killed wow. 51 people. It demolished thousands of buildings. 20,000 people were homeless. Jeez. But to adapt to the, to like to cover those losses, to not just go completely insolvent, uh, insurers had kind of had limited options of what to do. They could raise their premiums or reduce their coverage, but that would drive customers to other insurers, sure, right? Yeah. Looking for lower prices or better coverage. The other thing they could do was rely on a previous concept of reassurance, eventually known as reinsurance. Have you ever heard of reinsurance? Uh-uh. I had not either until about three weeks ago. Okay. Reinsurance is essentially insurance for insurance. That makes sense. Right? So it's like a catastrophic policy, right? So like if something, you're expected to cover your policyholder's losses up to a pretty high amount. But once it goes past that, okay, that's what this other version of insurance is for. It'll kick in 
and and your losses are covered. Again, to protect the companies from insolvency, from just going belly up. So uh, reinsurance would play an important role in the early 20th century, especially for Lloyds of London. In 1906, what massive disaster happened in 1906? Oh, the San Francisco earthquake. Yes. Destroyed. uh, We haven't covered that one, have have we? We Mm -mm. we did the 89 one. We did. The 1906 one has a lot. That's that's definitely going to be a two-parter. Oh, a multi-parter. Yeah, Yeah, it's it's huge. That has a lot of entanglements in it. Yeah, I only did very, very broad strokes um, because it it destroyed like 80%. Yeah, it destroyed like almost fucking all of it. It it was, and like 3,000 people died. Like it was terrible. It was really awful. so the earthquake was a problem, but then the earthquake caused fires, tons of mm-hmm. fires, as it did in 1989. <laughs> yep, but what that did to the insurance and insurers covering like buildings like, and stuff. Which, which is this? Yes, the earthquake policy insurers were like, "Wait, that's a fire issue," and the fire policy people were like, like that's, "That's an earthquake, earthquake. issue." Yeah. <clears throat> and Lloyd's of London very famously solidified their reputation as like a very, very good insurer by saying, we will cover all of our policyholders' losses. They had a robust reinsurance scheme, and they were able to do that, and that really bolstered confidence in their brand and in insurance in general, the insurance industry in general. And then reinsurance would become or remain vital throughout the 20th century because, oh, a little thing called the Titanic happened. (laughs) Pretty big loss there. Um, Wait, I thought that was just a movie. Right? (laughs) (laughs) It was so damn funny when the 100th anniversary of that happened. Right. Um, And I actually went down to the the museum because they had a a touring display. What Uh am I trying to say? Uh, A touring exhibit. Yes, Mm -hmm. thank you. but I remember seeing, because that's like kind of when I first got on Twitter. Mm-hmm. But, but these were like teenage kids, so they right. had no point of reference. They were like, wait, I thought Titanic was just a just movie. Just movie of Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> <laughs> if you didn't know better. And then I had my own moment like a couple of years ago, <clears throat> literally playing a video game. I'm like, I thought Lawrence of Arabia was a movie. I didn't, I didn't know it was he a was guy. Real. Yeah. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> well, we all have those things, yeah. right? Well, I had no context for it. You yeah. know, I wasn't alive during World War One. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, after the Titanic, oh, yeah, there was a world war. There was also, yeah. oh, the 1918 flu pandemic? During a world war. Yep. And then another world war and all sorts of things. And so fascism and Nazis. And- insurance became a major industry, long and short. But along with the development of the insurance industry came the regulatory environment in the United States for insurance. So regulation in the insurance industry in the U.S. started around 1850. So it's been 171-ish years. Um, Probably about 80 years too late. (laughs) Oh, well. Well, So that was when the very first insurance commissioner was instated in New Hampshire. And within 20 years, almost every state had an had an insurance commissioner. I can't, you know what? I said I say insurance, and then I keep saying insurance. So yeah, I, know, I guess I say it both. So um, insurers, <laughs> shocker, didn't like being regulated. No. <laughs> so they pushed back, and they said to these state commissioners, you can't regulate us. We are 
interstate commerce. We are covered by the Commerce Clause of the United States Constitution, which means this is federal. This is not state. I have a feeling you're going to get into a law that was passed in the 1940s that has something to do with that. The McCannon Ferguson? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, I am. Mm-hmm. I'm impressed you know about that. Yep. I only learned about this this week. No, that's, that's a pretty famous... Because that's been fucking over people, like, since then. Well, okay. Well, yeah, yeah. We're getting into that. So, um... So yeah, states didn't want any regulation, but the way they pushed back against the individual state regulation was by calling it a federal matter. In general, nobody wants regulation. Right. I mean, yes. you know, I mean, it's business a, doesn't want regulation. And people, uh, you know, in general. You know, I mean, you, I want building codes. You want certain things. Yeah, right. But <laughs> but you know what I mean. It, I would like my insurance regulated. Sure, but you know what I mean. Like the overall, people don't like to be told what to do. That, yes. For the most yes. part, you mm-hmm. know, and certainly businesses do not like to be told what to do yeah so the court case of paul v virginia making this argument you know this is a commerce issue this is federal this is not an issue but of the states which oh my god doesn't like 99.99 percent of every legal issue in the united states come down to states rights and shit like it's just it's well it's certainly it's certainly always used as an argument Mm mm-hmm so it depends on who you ask and when. <laughs> we all know what states' rights really means, but they'll throw that argument out for just about anything these days. Uh, legalization of weed, states' rights, states anybody? Right. Hmm. Yeah. No, so, not for that. <laughs> so uh, Paul v. Virginia made its way to the U.S. Supreme Court, and they rejected the Commerce Clause argument. So they said, no, this really is a state's issue. It was confirmed to be in the... Um, under the authority of all these state commissioners. So, and that ruling would stand until the mid 1940s when the US Department of Justice charged the Southeastern Underwriters Association with antitrust charges. Mm. They said they were engaging in price fixing, mm. that they were boycotting agents who didn't play ball with them. Mm. And that in other words, at the time, business as usual. Well, yeah. And that they were creating a monopoly for several states fire insurance policies, which are all violations of the Sherman Act, the United States first antitrust legislation. Yes. So the Supreme Court eventually heard the case and the justices voted four to three that the Commerce Clause did apply to the insurance industry, therefore fully subject to to federal antitrust laws. I do find this, because uh, the background of the period of time this is all taking place in is very fascinating. So This is during World War II. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Some of it's also during, like, something, some of it that's led up to it is also... During the Depression. Uh, yes. And yes, mm-hmm. it is a very turbulent economic mm-hmm. time, obviously, to say the least. So the state commissioners were not thrilled... They thought that this would mean that the industry regulation would be federally overtaken, right? That they were no longer in control of their their individual state's insurance industry, but that it was going to be federally overseen. The next year, 1945, the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, the NAIC, whose uh, guidelines I have to follow in my work, and they were founded in 1871, they backed the McCarran-Ferguson Act of 1945, a piece of legislation passed that specifically exempted insurance Mm -hmm. companies from most federal regulation 
effectively handing regulation back to the states mm-hmm. for insurance. So I'm surprised yeah, you had heard a, of that. I had never heard of that. It's come up in a couple of different... Well, I'm, I'm into history. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's come up in a couple of different uh, documentaries that I've watched because it, it's its effect was pretty, pretty not good. Yeah. We'll put it that way. Well, we're about to see what happens yeah. in, in certain environments. So... In- it, it, it is it is also known to be like one of the most um like cruel things that has ever been passed through Congress. Huh. I don't I guess I don't know. It doesn't sound that horrific just with this. On its face. Of it. On its face it's not. So But you know, as, yeah. as as we all know, if you want to do something horrible, put it inside something boring. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so in the modern insurance environment, of course, there's insurance for just about everything. Accidents, disability, very specific events or very specific items like an event like wind damage or an item like Tina Turner's legs. Mm-hmm. Remember she very famously? She did. Lots of musicians uh, insure Mariah their fingers. Mariah Carey yep. her voice. voice. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. very common. Uh, collegiate football players now very much so will ensure you sure should. Their hands or whatever yep. before they get drafted mm-hmm. just in case. Because you could lose out on <clears throat> your income for life. Mm-hmm. Your planned income for life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One major part of the industry is liability insurance Mm -hmm. or that's insurance that protects someone or a business an entity from legal claims and damages against them because of injuries or damage to other property or people and that's called a tort civil legislation Mm -hmm. that is for personal injury of some sort which is when you hear the the another famous phrase the politicians like to use is tort reform we are going to talk so much about tort Mm -hmm. reform so uh, Nobody no, knows what the talk- fuck it means. We're going to talk about oh, it. Oh, I know. We're I'm talk just saying. It. Oh, I know. It's, like, it's ask a, a person. It's, it's like a catch-all phrase. I didn't really have a clear idea of what a tort was until I took my business law class two semesters ago. Yeah, I did. I... So, it's personal injury, basically. Like, oversimplified, but... So, liability is in- liability insurance is unique because the payout is made to third parties. Sure. Right? So, mm-hmm. somebody else. Now, health insurance, same thing. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, it's not like homeowner's insurance or life insurance or something. So the origins of the 1980s liability insurance crisis stems back to the 1970s to the medical malpractice insurance industry. Mm-hmm. So medical malpractice insurance is, of course, liability insurance for doctors and other licensed healthcare professionals in the course of their duties. Now, their duties are very high responsibility and have a high level of risk, right? Because your people are inherently unstable in their health when they're seeking treatment, at least it meant a lot of times. Uh, between 1960 and 1972, premiums for medical malpractice insurance policies rose about 300% <clears throat> relative to the professional's income. Jesus. Now. The relative to income part is important because this was a period, which we're going to cover more in just a second, of massive inflation. So this this is just showing the proportion. The 1970s. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yep. Very high inflation, which we're going to talk about in a minute. So, uh, And this was because of the nature of the malpractice insurance industry. It was risky. And it wasn't generally one of the big money makers for insurance companies. It wasn't a major line of insurance that they carried, most companies. 
Malpractice is also considered, and I kind of mentioned this before, a long tail line of business for insurance companies. So in other words, it's not like claim payout, like immediately, like this equals that. So, so sure. your house burns down, here's your, here, here's your amount. There can be leak, protracted legal battles. It can be more long term. And that can be, uh, it, it, it can make it a lot harder to predict the risk of it and mitigate the risk of it. And then there was the fact that malpractice claims were noticeably on the rise. So by the early 70s, the annual increase in claims went up by over 12% with also significantly higher payouts. So That doesn't were sound suing, like a lot, but that's a lot. It is a lot. It, it, was in, it was increasing in frequency and more payouts had to be made. So it was getting more expensive. You're, t- you're also talking about this happening on a national scale. Like mm-hmm. that's a fucking huge increase. It is. It absolutely is. And there's a lot of speculation about why that happened. Like why all of a sudden did... My answer for that is it's the 1970s. It was just a fucking nuts well, decade. Well, there's some more granular level here. No, so. it's just because it was the 1970s. <laughs> That's just the easiest way to explain it. So one ex- possible explanation is that this was a period of like cutting edge technology development in medicine. Like they were sure. starting to really push technology. Isn't the 70s when the, the birth control pill came out? 60s. Oh, it was the, mm-hmm. I thought it was the 70s. Mid 60s. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. But these were new developments, sure. right? Um, and that's it's when the Pinto came it. out, I mean, you had, <laughs> which we did an episode on. Yes, we did. <laughs> um, there was also an increasingly complex pharmaceutical environment. So going to your point about birth control pills, there were new pharmaceuticals on the market sure. with new side effects and mm. new, um, new bad things. combinations yeah. and all sorts of things. It made that riskier. And then... There was also the transformation of attitude by the general public of healthcare. Suddenly, healthcare is a right, a human huh? right. I know, isn't mean? that so wild? Became. I'm never going to use it though. <laughs> right? Yeah. Oh. Why would I want to pay for somebody else's healthcare? I, I know, because who gives a shit about anybody yeah. else? Like, come on. Yeah. I would much rather use that money to lose wars in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Because that's more. I mean, that that's just the sense. logic, yeah. yeah. But what happened in the '60s that started making people think about, oh, maybe healthcare um, is right? Geez, Vietnam. Well, okay, Medicare and Medicaid were introduced in the '60s. Oh, that's right. It wasn't until then. Yep. That's right. So it didn't actually pass until the 1960s. It started connecting, like that's state right, because that was passed healthcare. through uh, LBJ. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yep. I forgot it was that late. I always, mm-hmm. I always tie that to uh, Social Security. Well, I always tie it to the um, uh, FDR. Yeah. It was FDR's idea. Which is social idea. security. Yes. He did social it was, security. Yeah. It was on his list of things to do, but it didn't get passed. For, for another 20 years. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. That's um, right. Yeah. So there was that. And then on top of it all. Wait, you want to you wanna pay for old people's health care? I know. What? Who gives a shit? Well, we have made it very clear that we don't give a fuck about old people during the COVID oh, pandemic. Yeah. Like, yeah. if well, ever... There were, or disabled people or immunocompromised people but or you don't kids under- now but for some reason. But you don't understand. They also had a cold, and that's the real reason they died. Because of how often people die from colds. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's yep. why. I gotcha. And the flu. Hashtag sarcasm. So add to all of that the perception, at least the perception, that injury litigation was also on the rise. 
especially amongst the new proliferation of contingency fee-based attorneys. You don't get paid until you get paid, right? And the industry landscape was ripe for a crisis. So the carriers of malpractice insurance tended to be regional or state-based, not big national insurers. Not bullshitting, though. That is a huge risk for the lawyers. Like, we don't get paid right. until you get paid because there's a lot of money that they have to pay to process things. But and... you're hoping for a big Yes, you are. You're comes. hoping for it. Mm-hmm. You're not always going to get it, though. And you're after that insurance company, yeah. basically. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Because the individual's not going to have the money. No. It's the insurance company mm-hmm. you're trying to milk. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying that in some cases malpractice oh, really does happen. Of course it happens. Yeah. Yeah. We'll just listen to Dr. Death. Jesus. <clears throat> uh, anyway. Um, is it a Marvel character? Who is that? No, it's a podcast that they <laughs> I was did. Kidding. I figured it was. A oh, podcast. okay. About it's... this guy who really was fucked up, like, and I mean fucked up on drugs and performing surgeries and killing people. Yeah, oh, nice. it was that horrific. That's the combination I want. And he just kept moving, and no one report. Like, he would get kicked out of his hospital duties or whatever, and he'd just go somewhere else. Oh, so he was like a cop. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he would just yes. murder somebody and just yes. move on You're to the right. next You're department. Right. <clears throat> so, and also, like I said, malpractice generally wasn't a, a big money, like, line for these insurance companies. Like, maybe they were a life insurance company primarily or other liability or whatever. So they didn't really do a great job at keeping an eye on the pricing of these policies relative to the risk and the losses. So by the time they realized it was a problem, they do very quickly raise their rates by a lot just to cover their losses so and the biggest result of this first crisis was the introduction of tort reform in malpractice lawsuits so that capped damages that could be awarded to successful plaintiffs in a medical malpractice claim so when people are talking about tort reform long and short what they mean is essentially capping claims So a very famous case involving or surrounding the discussion of tort reform was the hot coffee case. Uh, The McDonald's? The McDonald's hot coffee. Did you ever see that documentary, Hot Coffee? don't think I did. It's excellent. Because, and it's so funny because we just took a short break and I was looking at Facebook and our friend Rachel from Yours and Murder Mm -hmm. had just I just saw that she had posted that the 25th anniversary of that case just passed. Has it been that long? It has been that long. Um, I remember when it came out because it was a pretty big deal. What do you remember about it? Uh, This could be like a you're wrong about case. uh, All I remember about it is that somebody burned themselves with McDonald's coffee. Mm -hmm. And I don't think they were starting a class action lawsuit, but they were starting a lawsuit against McDonald's. Because of the temperature of their coffee. Some, right. Something like mm-hmm. that. Yeah, so it was spun as like a personal responsibility issue run amok with somebody who did a stupid thing and then blamed McDonald's for it, right? That's not what happened at all. If you look, if you watch the documentary, it's fucking mind-blowing. McDonald's is the devil. And okay. this poor lady, it was a set like a 75-year-old woman or something. And... Like, the 
how they placed the top was a problem. They kept their coffee at like scalding temperatures, like irresponsibly, like nobody needs coffee that hot. You can't drink coffee that hot. Okay. And she suffered like third degree burns in her lap. Yeah, that's pretty so, bad. And then she—I didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah, and then she only wanted like relatively minimal damages, and McDonald's was to like, oh, "Probably we'll, pay for the medical costs." Right. Or, yeah. And McDonald's was like, "Oh, we'll give you like five hundred bucks, something super insulting." <laughs> and a happy meal. Right. And then she was like, "Um, fuck no!" And then she went after them, and she got it. I think did she, she really? did. I think oh, she okay. did. I think she won. Man, I'll it's been a really that. long time. It's an excellent documentary, Hot Coffee. I really, really recommend it because it delves into tort reform. But how, like under this, the auspices of tort reform, corporations are maybe getting away from some corporate responsibility. Too. Well, the, the main thing I remember about that is the narrative that was behind mm-hmm. it. Which the narrative was obviously like this person's trying to get rich quick. And, yes, that yeah. it was that it was taking advantage yeah. of poor McDonald's, yeah. you know. Poor McDonald's. Yes. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> Jesus exactly, and that's what that was just anyway. So that's if you want to learn more about like tort reform and like both sides of the story. I also kind of remember because I would have been twenty five years ago. I would have been nineteen. <laughs> but I, but with my generation coming up, I remember that that was always a narrative of, oh, these kids just want to take advantage of yeah. like this and that the and all that other fucking bullshit. The idea of people abusing the legal system yeah. is very touted. Like everyone's yeah. litigious, yeah. right? But litigation, they don't want to. They don't want to work and like, get yeah. the fuck out of here. That, that's still the narrative today. Mm-hmm. But I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, so. Uh, tort reform was put in place in medical malpractice suits. Now, I will say, it is my personal opinion that absolutely like bad doctors or healthcare providers need to be caught. Well, sure, and, and they're and they're out there. <laughs> yes, but you know, there are few proportionally, sure, right? Absolutely, medicine is going to be inherently risky. Of course. And people will make mistakes. Yes. And doctors shouldn't be sometimes, so petrified. Sometimes somebody will leave a scalpel inside of you after they're already done wrapping you up. And there needs to be remediation for the people who sure, are injured. Sure, of course. My opinion is that it should be something on the state side that actually covers malpractice, at least to a point. So that, yeah, because I mean, it's, it's all know. it's doing is driving up healthcare costs because doctors have to bear that responsibility for sure. liability insurance. So, I mean, our healthcare it's industry is all fucked up, but... Yeah. yeah, if you're one of our international listeners, you have no fucking clue what God, we're talking like, about. Why are you guys so fucked up? We don't, well, we do know why yeah, we're we horrible why. We know why. Mm. So, as a result of this malpractice crisis of the 70s, um, a lot of insurers ended up just dropping their malpractice lines altogether. Now, that led to a gap in the market, which was eventually filled by other insurers, often mutual companies. And I learned what a mutual company is. A mutual company is a company that doesn't have shareholders, effectively. It's not like a corporation with stock and shareholders. It's Basically, its only responsibility is, well, it of course, has to maintain surplus and stuff, and we're going to get into that. But um, it's like the policyholders are essentially the quote-unquote shareholders. And if the company's doing really well, it pays out dividends to its policyholders, mm-hmm. not to its shareholders. And then if things aren't going so great, well, they have to jack up the prices. 
but it's it's almost a more cooperative form of functioning sure. versus profit driven. Um, and these new mutual companies covering malpractice were often um, formed by healthcare providers. Mm-hmm. So it was, uh, um, or by healthcare groups. So it, it, it was, it kind of filled, now it filled that gap in the market, but medical malpractice has been an issue, like oh, in terms I'm... of cost, for a very yeah. long time. And it comes and goes and ebbs and flows, but it's still been an issue. So. And it always will be an issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, it, it is very much associated with the horribly high health care costs in the United States. So. so now, are we ready for the main event? The 1980s insurance Oh, that's right. Something happened. Yes. I thought we're we were not just going to talk, we talk about insurance the whole time. So in the mid-20th century, insurance companies tried to remain competitive in the burgeoning insurance marketplace by lowering premiums but not cutting coverage so to stay competitive they're like hey our prices are better and you still get all that coverage i can already see where this is going yeah they're trying to remain to remain contractive to consumers but the one area that began developing to assist with this okay so how do we like keep costs low but also, and also like, be able to pay out. Yes. Well, <clears throat> and to, and to offer this coverage, right? And remain solvent. Yes. Yeah. Uh huh. The area that started to sort of come up was this idea of risk management or risk mitigation. So in 1963, risk mitigation got more of the spotlight when the book Risk Management in the Business Enterprise by Robert Mayer and Bob Hedges was published. Um. So we're gonna kind of table that and come back to it. But anyway, kind of going back to like where we are in point in time leading up to the early 1980s the insurance industry was experiencing a soft portion of the insurance cycle or the underwriting cycle so the idea the sort of concept here is that in the market conditions of insurance it's pretty normal to sort of cycle between a hard market and a soft market and uh it's like a bull and bear market yes a time a time mm-hmm. of lower competition mm-hmm. And higher prices is a hard market. Mm-hmm. And higher competition that drives down prices is a soft market. It's like a seller's market and a buyer's market, right? And a soft cycle, so when there's lots of competition, prices are low, is especially facilitated when investment yields are high. Because these insurers can drop their prices because they don't need to make revenue by, by income. Sure. Directly from sure. from their business activity. They can make it off of their investments. Make it off of their exactly. Mm-hmm. So and that becomes their a prime source of revenue, right? Uh, and that so if if you have higher returns on your investments as an insurance company, then you can afford to lose a little bit more on the profit end of it, right? Of the of the actual business activity of of premiums. Now, one of the many economic hallmarks of the late 70s and early 80s was runaway inflation. Like, have you ever... I, this is the first time <clears throat> I knew that there was bad inflation. But I knew there was in the 70s. I didn't necessarily think there were in the eight, There so was in the 80s. Do you have in your mind, you know, like average cost of living inflation raise and pay or something? Do you have a percentage in mind? I'll, put it, to, I'll put it to you this way. Um... To a degree, yes. I know what it costs to rent a one-bedroom apartment in mm. 1997 
versus what it costs <laughs> okay. versus what it costs today. Just to simplify yeah, it, I guess. I, gotcha. I guess I mean year over year. Like each All year, right, what's so an average no inflation? Uh, I would say somewhere like uh, one to two percent, somewhere in there. Yeah, so usually like two to three is pretty okay. like considered very average. Aren't we trending so, this year at like four or five? We're gonna get to that in a hot second. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Uh huh. So uh, so yeah, two to three percent. Because inflation, I know, is isn't necessarily a bad thing. It, so it I'm not wants even to... getting into the, okay. like the specifics sure. of uh, inflation, but uh, so if two to three percent is considered average. The years of the 70s were seeing 8, 9, Yeah, that's 10%. fucking nuts. Yeah. In 1980, the inflation rate was 13.5%. Yeah, I know a little bit about this because when I did work for the bank, I was um, I helped open people's accounts and stuff like that. And then I went on to, um, this is in the early 2000s, where refinancing that market uh, exploded. the bubble. Well, because it was so fucking easy. And that's what got into my mind. I'm like... Underwriters taking bad risks. <laughs> well, I mean that, but that's not what I. I was literally calling people because I had a whole. Right. You were in sales for. Yes, for I had a whole thing, and I'm looking at what percentages people are paying on their court mark, mm-hmm. and it was every single one of them was like eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve percent. Have always told me about. Oh yeah, when we bought our house, it was like nine percent interest. Yeah. I'm like, are yeah. you kidding me? Because we're sub five, sub four yeah. at this point. And the the bank I worked for. Um, at that time, I want to say it was four and a half or five percent. You could re- and it didn't cost to refinance. Mm-hmm. So it was the right. fucking. It was literally easy e- the easiest. Fu- now some people the, the the figures bear out right because some people were like, oh, I don't believe that it's bullshit and yeah. would hang up. Of course, you did, but I would I would say my closing rate was somewhere around fifty percent, which yeah. which in sales, in sales is, is a stupid. You know, I mean, it was mm-hmm. it was just easy. Mm-hmm. It was the easiest sales job I ever fucking yeah. had. Yeah. So, yeah. the And that would make sense if people had been in these mortgages since the 80s. Then, mm-hmm. yeah, they would have shit interest oh, rates. Oh, yeah. They so, were yeah. all, I would say on average, they were all like around 10%. That's, it's, and you're literally it's cutting wild it to think about half. it because we haven't seen that in our adult no, lifetime. Uh-uh. So. Not even close. So, yeah, that's, that's just, it's just wild. Um, now, so as an aside, the United States inflation rate over the past decade has been very much in the average, 2 to 3%. And they're, like, 2014, 2015 was sub 1%. And I've also seen economic theory. There's the Mark Blythe guy that I follow mm-hmm. on, on YouTube. The Scottish economist? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, who says that that's been a problem. Low that inflation. That they're, sh- yeah. like, if you're all of a sudden it's introducing uh-huh. trillions of dollars into the market, which uh-huh. we did with the 2008 crash, mm-hmm. and which we just did last year with mm-hmm. the... He's like, there is supposed to be inflation. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just... Mm-hmm. Well, so... Um, but I don't... Uh, yeah. I, but but here's yeah. here's an interesting thing. Uh, 2020, last year, it was a little under 2% inflation. So we actually had sub-average last year. This year, it's trending over 5%. Okay. So we are having a, a high, much higher proportionately inflation year this year. Which post-COVID... <coughs> excuse me. <clears throat> Post-COVID and all that stuff. Like, it makes sense that shit happened last year. I mean, basically, anything that happened in 2020, we're going to say, well, COVID. <laughs> but well, yeah. now, I mean, now really. inflation, you know, is mm-hmm. going up. So, anyway, back to the 80s. Uh, the massive increase in inflation led to increased interest rates as set by the Federal Open Market Committee, the FOMC of the Federal Reserve, or the Fed. Mm-hmm. 
to balance out inflation. So so which, inflation which, was going up, during this, interest rates were going up. During this time, I want to say this is when... It wasn't Greenspan Very early yet. 80s. I yeah. don't know who was the ch- chairman. I've got the guy. Anyway. Anyway. Gotcha. <laughs> I almost said Benjamin Netanyahu. Might as, might, might as well have been. the chairman of the Federal Reserve. <laughs> <laughs> Why would I even associate Benjamin? I don't know. He, wasn't he the prime minister yes. of Israel? <laughs> I think he still is. Okay. Isn't he? I, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. I have no. I just. I think I was just associating like, you know, like Janet Reno, and I don't know. I'm like just naming people in power in the past. Steve I don't know. Steve Ducey. I've never heard of him. He's a Fox News anchor. Oh. Like I'm just throwing. I'm throwing out. <laughs> no wonder. <laughs> so anyway, inflation was going up. Interest rates were going up. That means investments were. And I'm, that's going to drive me nuts. Like you want to look it up. I uh, no. Go ahead. Okay. That means investments yeah. were seeing... Okay, go ahead. No, 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 no. Keep talking. No, I, can, I, I don't. Can do, I don't I like... can do two things at once. I Keep talking. Know, so that... Because, means... all right, then I'm not going to look. Oh, no. <laughs> just just <laughs> go keep ahead. going. It's okay. Keep going. So that means that these investments that the insurance companies <clears throat> were making were seeing huge returns. Sure. Which led to them dropping prices mm-hmm. and premiums, right? Yeah, we can all see where this is going. Unfortunately, the insurance companies didn't see the obvious bust that was about to happen. So in the mid-1980s, at least partially as a result of federal deregulation legislation signed into law by both Jimmy Carter Mm -hmm. and Ronald Reagan, the the savings and loans loan crisis came to a head causing the collapse of thousands of savings and loans, loan and banking institutions, massively disrupting the investment market, including the investments insurance companies had come to rely on in order to offer rock-bottom premiums. It was in 1987, I believe. It was a... It was... Black Monday came in 1987. Okay. The savings yeah. and loan scandals, or mm-hmm. problem itself, crisis, was over a period sure. of years in the mid-'80s. But, but it yeah. came to a head... Uh, yeah. There's probably like an identified point in time mm-hmm. when everybody realized how screwed everybody was. Yeah. So unfortunately for insurance companies and their policyholders, busted investments was not their only problem. This is another perfect storm sort of situation. As if that weren't bad enough, right? They were in untenable situations to begin with. But insurers were also contending with violently increasing claims surrounding what would be known as APH, asbestos, pollution, and health. (laughs) So use of asbestos peaked in the early 70s in the U.S. I did not know it went on that way. I didn't know it went that far. And insurers had written kinda, all kinda sorts of policies for, <clears throat> in the past not knowing the absolute detrimental health impacts that would eventually be discovered, be sued over the whole nine, right? Uh, the 70s and 80s also saw uh, sharp rises in pollution and a, glow, a growing concern over cl- global warming, Climate change is still very much a major risk for insurers. And the healthcare industry was and still is facing massively rising costs. Then you add to that 
what major health crisis took place in the 80s? Uh, something about having gay people having sex all right. over the place. Right, of course, that's the, that's the problem. Yeah. That's the problem, yeah. yeah. Bathhouses. Yeah. Again, hashtag sarcasm, yes. just in case. So Yeah, that's true. Just in case this is your first time. <laughs> just in case. I meant that as a joke. Yes. This, uh, so the AIDS- It's not funny like most of my jokes. <laughs> but, yes, AIDS happened in the 1980s. The AIDS crisis was in full swing and wreaking havoc on, havoc on all walks of life for insurers. Not just gay people. Right. For insurers, they had previously been able to rely on the fact that the lowest risk group of people... To insure for life and health insurance. People in their 20s. People 20, 30, 40, right? Yeah. Now, as a result of the disease, no one knew how to effectively treat. Insurers were paying out on policies they never anticipated they would have to in health and in life insurance. If somebody who's 25 has a life insurance policy, their premiums are teeny, teeny, tiny. It's like five cents a year. Yep. And then all of a sudden you're having to pay out a lot of (laughs) premiums on people in the state. Which that money was supposed to be reserved for somebody who's 70 years old. Yes, exactly. Now your reserves are, or your surpluses is tanking. So Wow, I never thought of it that way, of yes, it hitting the insurance, but of course it's going yes, to. Yes, yeah. Isn't that interesting? So also, the policy's payouts were a lot higher because the risk was low. The payout was high. Sure. And now they were having to pay it out. In fact, AIDS-related uh, payouts for, for insurance, for uh, health, or sorry, life insurance, were about two and a half times larger than for other causes of death. I mean, well, yeah. It's basically double indemnity kind yeah. of stuff, right? This phenomenon phenomenon of payouts outpacing inflation is sometimes something called or is something actuaries call superimposed inflation. That doesn't sound good. No. And then you add to APH asbestos pollution and health, the industry also had to contend with oil spills and big oil rigs. The proliferation of nuclear power plants and how to properly mitigate risk in a power plant, nuclear power plant, and the, the growth of the airline industry and the oil crisis, still from the 70s. Mm-hmm. So, insurers were now in a huge bind. They had written tons of policies with rock bottom premiums that were now at an exponentially higher risk than originally anticipated. Investment returns screeched to a halt, and huge payouts were made left and right. They were just, like, bleeding money Mm -hmm. at this point. The only way that the insurance companies could try to recover some of these losses, you raise your prices. Exactly. You raise your premiums. Yeah. So, in 1984... Net written premiums, which means like the premiums you write, not mm-hmm. necessarily that have actually been received, but that you're writing in the contract. Well, net, yep. not gross. Right. Yeah. Well, net. Yeah. Net and gross are two different things. So no, I understand. Net gross, I, said, yeah. I said net, not gross. Not gross. Gotcha. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, net written premiums were six and a half billion in 1984. By 1986, Two years later, I'm guessing it doubled. They've tripled. $19.4 billion. That's how much they raised those prices. Wow. Yep. And that put a squeeze on the already squeezed out consumer base, right? And what do we know now? Like a dollar now is. 
Oh, her man, daughter. I, I know we did that I, anyway. I'm better with the 70s than the 80s on that, but let's just say like today that would be around like probably 50 billion, probably. Yeah, but maybe like two and a half, three times. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Billion with a B. <sighs> or half of what we spent per month in Afghanistan every month we were there. <laughs> Jeez, yeah. But it was worth it. Oh, yeah. Look at the victory we're claiming now. God. All right. And all, even those hugely raised raised premiums didn't help the insurance companies very much. Property and casualty, also called PNC, insurers pre-tax losses in 1986 had increased up to $5.5 billion up from about $3.8 billion. That's a, again, that's, yeah, a that's a big huge jump. increase. That's almost double. And nowhere was this squeeze felt more than in the liability insurance sector. Because liability liability insurance is needed for just about everyone, for just about everything. Like, we have liability insurance requirements for our cars, right? Auto policies sure. mm-hmm. have minimum requirements you have from to. the state. Yep, yeah. from the state level. Uh, our houses have mm-hmm. liability. Our biz- businesses are big sources of um, liability insurance. And professions like doctors, lawyers, attorneys, accountants. Mm-hmm. I have liability I was going to say, you insurance. had liability. I have physical liability insurance. I have like errors and omissions liability insurance. Like, yeah. And between 1984 and 1987, the prices on liability insurance had risen so high, many people just simply couldn't afford it. Mm-hmm. So this impacted huge wow. sectors of the economy because, like, for example, maybe a doctor couldn't afford their malpractice insurance, an attorney couldn't afford malpractice insurance, an accountant couldn't couldn't find their E&O coverage. And, but they that's not the only place this affected. Local and state governments couldn't, sure. get, couldn't find sufficient coverage for, oh, Parks. Mm-hmm. Somebody gets hurt in the park, they're gonna sue the state or the water pipes. Yeah, yeah, Flint. Anybody? Yeah, infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, so yeah, firefighters, police departments, mm-hmm. like essential services couldn't. And get again, liability and we coverage. saw this exact same thing happen after two thousand eight. Mm. Mm-hmm. And we're gonna see it again. Oh, it's yeah. Like in these coming years, right. like it's yeah. Um, the construction and manufacturing industries were also hugely impacted. In the March 1986 edition of Time Magazine, the cover read, Sorry, America, your insurance has been canceled. In some cases, people literally just couldn't find policies. Like, nobody would cover them. So... While this was a U.S. crisis primarily because of the proliferation of foreign insurance insurers in the U.S. market, it had a global impact. And well, it, anything that the U.S. that's very true financially yep. will You're have right. a global impact. Right. It also brought back up the issue of tort reform <laughs> from the medical malpractice crisis of the '70s because insurer insurers were saying, "Hey, the problem with all of this." Is the fucking lawyers <laughs> now? Is it's that the, it's the easy scapegoat? Is that the, is the scapegoat? Yes, yeah. it is absolutely. Yeah. Now we don't we don't want to solve the problem. We just want to blame people. Now something to be considered yeah. is that concerns were expressed over lay people, meaning a jury, just randomly pulling out numbers or judging numbers when maybe they didn't have well. How can skills you expect just so. some random person to understand all this yes, shit? Which is why, like. 
And, and I don't know if this is a thing, but it would seem to me the smartest thing would be to help give people, like, benchmarks. Well, also, ideas. also at this time, you don't have the internet. Yeah, you it's can't not, do your you own can't literally, You can't literally, you can't do your own research. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there were a couple of, like, like... People were in there with, like, spreadsheets and shit. Like, <laughs> printed fucking, out on dot yeah, matrix. And like, fucking, what the fuck is this? Like, with the, uh, the little chit on the side, yeah. Uh, 10 million. <laughs> 10 million? Sure, 10 million. <laughs> and there were some famous cases. Like, one much-cited example was the case in which a 32-year-old man was trying to start his lawnmower. And it wouldn't start, and he kept pulling, you know, the chain thingy. Mm-hmm. And he had a heart attack. Oh. And he sued the lawnmower company for not being starting leading, not starting leading to his heart attack. I I started mowing lawns around this time. Uh huh. Those things were a fucking pain in the ass to start <laughs> by, back well, in the day. Well, if you had a heart attack, maybe you would have been awarded like this man one point seven five million dollars. I should have had a heart attack mm-hmm. at ten. <laughs> in another example. A school district in California had to settle out of court for six figures after being sued by a teenager who sued them. The teenager had been trying to rob a school in the district when he fell through a skylight and became quadriplegic. He sued the school. Smart <laughs> that on he the was teen- breaking into. Smart on the teenager. He got money. <laughs> he got money. It was a successful robbery. Now, yes, it was. One might also ask if it was worth the use of his arms and legs, but you know. Uh, Now, not everyone was blaming the economic and legal conditions, though. Some people pointed their fingers right back at the insurance companies. Oh, yeah. Alleging that they were colluding. They were taking taking advantage of their freedom from federal antitrust regulation by price fixing and manipulating insurance reserve accounts, which is literally called cartel behavior. (laughs) So. Or the the modern United States economy. Mm-hmm. We do run on a cartel system, don't we? (laughs) Yes, we do. So the focus of the insurance industry on tort reform during the crisis paid off. Between 1985 and 1987, most states enacted some version of tort reform. One of the forms many of us may be familiar with is the concept of no-fault insurance for auto accidents. Yeah, oh yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, I don't think we're in a no-fault state. I was going to say, was, I was going to say it varies state by state. Florida was a no-fault state. I think I New don't York, think it, I think this New is. York was. Yeah. If I'm, but I'm not positive. One of the form, or, or no, uh, it was South Carolina. Oh, okay. Yes, because that was, was the, fir- that was the first, no. It doesn't strike me as no. being a no-fault Because that was the first state I owned a car, was South okay. Carolina. Uh, legislators, however, were not convinced that that was the problem, that tort reform was going to, like, solve everything. And they demanded empirical evidence. Like, did this really help what you said it was going to help? Um, and the insurance services office ran a study to determine the impact of tort reform on the insurance industry. The report was released in 1987, and it revealed that they found that the much-fought-for tort reform would actually have little, if any, impact on insurance rates. So, no, I mean, that was not the problem. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's because it's so easy to single out a couple of instances here and there and make it, oh, the whole... Right. You know, yeah, like these, we're in, these little, these cases here and there. Yeah. Where if you look at the whole picture, like it's not going, this is yeah. like one percent of the things. It's right. It's not. It's the exception, not the rule. Right. Or the exception that proves the rule. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Then the insurance industry suffered further reputational damage when it was learned that during this crisis period of hugely inflated premiums, insurers' profits increased. So they did not become insolvent during this crisis. The system collapsed. Their profits didn't. (laughs) Funny, the same thing happened last year. Uh. So the NAIC, the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, responded to the crisis with a swift remodel of the way insurers were required to mitigate risk, seeing as they had essentially been gambling with policyholders' money for decades. So the organization created a new model of risk-based capital that was adopted in the 90s. So basically, risk-based capital, or RBC, is the idea that insurers should keep some portion of money, capital reserve, like reserves, a little, mm-hmm. little emergency fund, if you will, in that is in proportion of their size and their risk. I mean, see, to me, I think that's punishing people for their success. I know, right? Mm-hmm. And we don't want to do that mm-hmm. here. <laughs> so the idea is, if you are, if you're insuring more people or you're making riskier investments, you should have a larger reserve to fall back on. Your capital should be, the risk-based capital sure. that you hold should be larger because you, should have you a, need a you bigger should, safety you net. You should have a rainy day fund, just in yes. case. You should have a bigger safety net if you're making bigger leaps, mm-hmm. right? Prior- Funny, that's how, that's, how, that's how Vegas is regulated. Yeah. Um, like, especially in... Some movie gets into this. I can't. Uh, I think Ocean's Rounders. Eleven. Oh. Um, like especially if there is a prize fight or something where they know there's going to be shit tons of money changing uh-huh. hands, they have to have enough to a, pay enough out. in their mm-hmm. vaults and to like if they lose everything, uh-huh. they have to have that money there. Now, like that's regular. Now insurance doesn't run on that proposition sure. that you'd literally have to pay out every policy. Sure. It's proportionate. I'm just using it as like a. I got gotcha. you. Baseline example. Yeah, no, I understand that. <clears throat> so now the risk-based model was dynamic, right? It was like, okay, it depends on how big you are and how much risk you're taking. And then there's a calculation that then spits out how much you should be keeping. Sure. Um, but prior to that risk-based capital model, there was just a flat rate of 4.5% of capital that insures. So ins- a, a, a tiny insurer taking tiny Which- risks had to... Had to with had to have four four and a half percent a giant insurer with giant <laughs> just risks had four and still just had to, yeah which was yeah. not nearly enough no. so this model was a lot more dynamic and again it's punishing people for their success yeah so there's a scale used by the NAIC to determine if an insurer is holding enough risk-based capital RBC if they're not the insurance commissioner of the corresponding state or states if it's a multi-state insurer are empowered to take regulatory action up to and including liquidating the company. They can fucking just Mm -hmm. write it off and call it a day. Um, If it gets bad enough reaching what's called mandatory control level or MCL, commissioners are actually required to essentially take over the company Mm -hmm. with full regulatory control and supervision. It can get, it can get pretty severe. A recent example of that, it's not an insurance company. Um, A recent example of that would have been um, uh, the bailouts to the auto agencies. Mm. Part of the deal of that bailout, which 
did not happen with the financial institutions and should have mm-hmm. because we were giving them the federal government were giving them so much money mm-hmm. that meant that we had that the federal government meaning at the time Barack Obama mm-hmm. got a majority of seats on their board uh huh yeah regulatory control mm-hmm. yep it wound up working mm-hmm. one of the few good things that happened during <laughs> the, the administration but th- that's a kind of a example of what that means gotcha. So risk mitigation has become more and more the focus of the NAIC and its guidance to the individual states in regulating insurance companies. So individual states, departments, or divisions, or bureaus of insurance are accredited and audited by the NAIC. The the NAIC adopted the MAR, the Model Audit Rule, and revamped the organization's financial examination handbook to explicitly focus on risk when auditing an insurance company, which is required at least once every five years for every insurance company operating in a state. So this risk-focused examination approach is primarily, and I can attest to this, doggedly concerned with assessing an insurance company's solvency. It sure. is 100% about can Do you they have the pay money? out the claims in a reasonable manner to their policyholders. So the idea is, are they solvent or are they going to go under and leave all these people high and dry? It is highly regulatory. Mm. So, Individual states' ability to fully regulate the insurance industry without federal oversight has been both reaffirmed and challenged. Of course. So the Graham-Leach-Bailey Act... Both of those things are going to happen. The Graham-Leach-Bailey Act... Oh, sorry. Bliley Act of Mm -hmm. 1999 and the infamous Dodd-Frank Act of 2010 both affirmed the state's rights to regulation. But the health care reforms surrounding 2010, around the Affordable Care Act, resulted in a repeal by the House of Representatives of the McCarran-Ferguson Act in respect to health insurance companies. If deregulation of the state on the state level occurred, if that ever happened, other federal regulation would apply, including antitrust laws, and the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, would actually be the overseer if states were not. If you bring the lawsuit, too. Like, it's not an automatic thing. No, 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 no I get it. Yeah. I'm just saying what would happen if, sure. that, if they were to deregulate on the state level and mm-hmm. hand it over to federal. In January 2021... Like one of his last legislative acts, Donald Trump signed into law the Competitive Health Insurance Reform Act, and it was opposed by the NAIC, and it repealed the McCarran-Ferguson Act for health and dental insurance. Fantastic. And that, my friends, was the story of the 1980s insurance liability crisis. So did he do that did he do that before or after uh he caused an insurrection to happen on the Capitol building? I think it was the January 13th, but I So could it was be wrong. after. Why anybody was letting him do a fucking thing wow. after that? That's a whole different story. But anyway. What did you think? I thought it was I really thought it was fantastic. I thought it was really cuz it there is so much going on historically behind mm-hmm. the scenes during these times. Mhm. You know, um, and obviously this is a, another, we don't have a death toll or anything because it's no. impossible to This was far more an economic crisis sure. yeah. um, to consumers, largely. I mean, the insurance companies came out okay. Oh, well, yeah. Um, 
in general, like I said, the profits went up during this time. So in general, they they were they were okay. What it did do, the good thing that came from this bad thing is how much more like really the risk focused approach to regulating insurance companies makes a lot of sense because from a regulatory perspective, what are you doing? You're trying to protect constituents, protect consumers. Mm -hmm. So on the state level, the idea is we want to protect policyholders. We want to protect people who buy insurance thinking that it'll be there for them. Wait, we do? (laughs) What? I'm sorry. I'm a small government conservative. Now, I'm never, ever going to explain what that means. Yes. It's uh-huh. literally just a catchphrase. But if you ever hear that term, if you're new to that term, if you're young or whatever, or if you've just never really thought about it, when somebody says they're a small government whatever, what it means is they don't give a shit if you get fucked out of all of your money by whatever institution. It's like the lovely people who are like, oh, I must be libertarian because I'm libertarian. socially just, liberal don't even, don't even but get fiscally me conservative. Do not it's even like, get me started mm, on those people. Okay. Libertarians are literally just uh, hardcore Republicans that smoke weed. That's, yeah, that's, right? that's, all, that's all they are. And they're willing to concede that. Part. Yes, yeah. So anyway, but no, I thought it was... Uh, Look at all I learned about insurance the fucking the 70s and eight jesus fucking christ i know and, we, and we've never gotten out of that cycle mm. like that it it's just yeah and we're never going to i mean let's face it it's you know you know it's funny my coworker, um a coworker of mine who is is i would say from my exposure to them so far is like maybe kind of establishment dem sort of leaning slightly progressive like thinks Kamala Harris is progressive well no 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 not so much <laughs> oh, okay. but what what they did say was that they have a daughter and their daughter loves AOC okay. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez just in case anyone eh, whoever's listening to us probably knows I think most people know but um he was like well yeah she's great and like well intentioned but like, she just wants to start things from scratch, like blow it all up and start over. And he's like, but really, you know, if you're on the ship, you shouldn't be destroying the ship at sea and trying to rebuild it. You should try to rebuild the ship you're on. And I was now, in I my under- opinion, right. work and personal lives yeah. kept completely separate. So sure. I was just like, ah, you know, like I didn't comment, but I was like, I'm sorry. I kind in my internally, I'm like. I don't think we stand much of a chance until it does dismantle completely. Um, well, I, I, and that's either going to happen voluntarily or by force. Uh, it's going to be by force. Yeah. Uh, we've already seen that. Yeah. Um, because what are we willing to give voluntarily? And that's a question. For, too many for, really shitty people would have to give up too much. Yeah, and it's also a question for 350 million people. Yeah. You know, because it's literally going to affect it. Mm-hmm. I understand the sentiment that that person said, like, you don't destroy the ship while you're on it. I just think we're at a point where there's literally no other... It's, well, I think there's it's no too other late. way. Well, that too. I think it's too that late. Too. I actually think it's physically too late in terms of climate change. Like, like we're gonna burn... And die, and <laughs> you know, I mean, that's probably going to happen anyway. We're going to burn but... and die. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! Happy, happy, cheerful, cheerful podcast. 
No, but, uh, the, but you know, it, like, like I understand people's reservations towards blowing up the system. I completely, it's, it's understandable. It's scary. It's, of course it's very it is. unstable. Of course it is. Yeah. Oh, it's com- totally unstable. And it would take, we don't know if it would work or not. That's yeah. the, that's the other thing. And for it to work, it would take a generation or two before it actually it's kicked in. It's a long-term plan. It's a very long-term plan. But what we know is that what we're doing now isn't working. It's not working at all. So either a guaranteed fail or a possible success. But it's not a guaranteed fail if you're one of the people that's making out on it. And is a success for 1% of the people really a success? I would say no. <laughs> to them? Absolutely. To them it is. It's all relative, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So... Yeah. So right. we'll we'll fix the world. That'll be our ending podcast mm-hmm. after we do uh, the capitalism slash climate uh, change. Climate change mm-hmm. We are gonna fix the world. <laughs> One of our listeners, Maurice, uh, <laughs> when we we talked about that, when we talked about um, cap capitalism versus climate change being our last episode, they were like. I'm sorry, you're planning your last episode. <laughs> yeah, <it's okay>. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. We're just. No, we'll be dead when that happens. Like you suddenly won't hear from us or anybody again. <laughs> or anybody else. We'll just <laughs> yeah. all go radio. Be like it must have been the the tornado slash hurricane <laughs> that ravaged Raleigh. This the new storm that they haven't even come up yeah, with a the, name. Yeah, we for. don't even have a name for it yet. Mm. We love you guys though. Yes, we do. <laughs> and we know you listen to us for our optimism <laughs> and, and it's well and, and it's just like i look at people in their fucking 20s today i'm I know. just like i fucking I feel so horrible for you i'm you like know, it's I'm just glad i'm my age yeah i'm glad i grew up when i, I to me i kind of missed out on maybe the sweet spot but i came pretty fucking close i, think I hit the sweet spot frankly i don't think you did but what, anyway do you think i missed missed it or yeah. by which well you were only what 15 or 16 when 9 11 happened yeah, but I grew up with the internet, like, but only age, like, 11 on, and I missed social media until my adulthood. I see for me, and I mean, this is different for everybody, I'm sure. For me, I put the pivot of where we are as a nation at 9-11. Okay, but what age was this? Was the perfect age for 9-11? Well, I don't know if there's a perfect one, but it would have been, I think it would have been, I'll put it this way. It would have been best for people in their 20s to experience what adulthood in like the late 90s and before. Oh, before, okay. you know I what see. I mean? You're saying the perfect age is a little older than you. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, like probably like my sister's age. Yeah. 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 Although that my old that's that's when they started. That's when you started to see the decline of America. Yeah. But still, you got some of the good things and. No, the decline of America was that stupid movie we started watching. The big chill. The big chill. (laughs) Not stupid. It's not stupid. No, those are the people that caused the decline of America. (laughs) I mean, the movie is kind of funny, and the acting is good. It's just the characters are shit. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I understand. They're horrible people. I understand the baby boomers had a lot of problems. They had a lot of shit to worry about. They did. And then they sold it out. They sold out. That's the thing. (laughs) That's the fucking thing I can't get over. It's like you protested the Vietnam War, and then, like, literally, like, 12 years later, you fucking voted for Ronald Reagan. Like, get the fuck out of here. Like, stop. <laughs> like, you lost all your credibility. You lost it. Gone. Yeah. Um, which, yeah. Oh, fucking Jesus Well, I'm Christ. glad we didn't get political on this episode. <laughs> <laughs> 
Like, if they had voted for Ron, like, if Ron Reagan had come around, like, 30 years later, that kind of would have made sense. But no, he was, like, literally, a like, decade. he was just, like, right around the yeah. corner. It was just, like, get, uh, for fuck's sake. All right, fuck everything. We're all going to die and burn in hell. <laughs> no, I didn't say burn What did we just say? I said we're all going to burn and die. Oh, we're all going to burn and die. <laughs> That's all. Just, um, There's another good catchphrase for it. If you live in a state that has uh, either medicinal or fully legal marijuana, I suggest you get on that. There are bills going on in our general. <laughs> It'll assembly. be another fucking ten years before. No, we get it you know here. what? If they if they hit it on the because Virginia legalized medically medically or fully, I forget. I think medically. Um, they're gonna hit the commerce. If they hit commerce well, if they write it well as like lost revenue, there's a possibility some of those fuckers will vote for it. <sighs> I we'll hope. See. So. I hope so. We'll see. But before the the odds of us burning and dying Would you like before? me to, to walk to the legislative building? I could ask. Sure. Anyway. That was another episode of All Bad Things. I'm David. I'm Rachel. We'll see you next week.